0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: Colleagues, this was not easy. We worked around the clock. Long days and nights, strained and sometimes tense, but united and working for one aim.
2: The clock had just struck four, early on Sunday morning, in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh, when Sameh Shukri, the president of the COP27 climate summit, gaveled in a landmark deal.
1: I invite the CMA to consider agenda sub-item 8F, matters relating to funding arrangements Bonding to loss and damage associated with...
2: Notice the climate key climate. words there, loss climate. and damage. That's a way for richer countries to compensate poorer ones for the effects of climate change.
1: If there are no objections, it is so decided.
2: <laughs> the world's most vulnerable nations, which can least afford to deal with the consequences of a changing climate, have been waiting three decades for such a fund.
1: Excellencies, dear friends, we leave Sharm el-Sheikh with a renewed hope in the future of our planet, with an even stronger collective will and more determination to achieve the temperature goal of the Paris Agreement.
2: But despite the success on loss and damage, COP27 has been a challenging summit. Many of the delegates left disappointed. So how much progress was actually made on climate change, and what needs to happen next? Hello and welcome to Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist's Science Correspondent. This is the final episode of our four-part series covering COP27, The agreement that emerged from the United Nations Climate Summit has provoked a mixed reaction around the world. Today, we'll dissect the text and explore what's next in the climate arena. And by the way, it's not all sombre news. Today, we'll take a look at an African project that could benefit not only the climate, but the economy too. Shortly I'll be joined once again by the regulars of this series, The Economist's Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor Vijay Vaithiswaran and our Environment Editor Katrine Brahek, who's just come back from COP27. But they weren't the only people reporting for The Economist at the summit. Our correspondent Rachel Dobbs was there too. And as the conference delegates thrashed out what they wanted in the final text of the agreement, Rachel recorded her thoughts for us in real time.
3: The time is about 7pm on Friday the 18th of November. cop 27 was meant to finish about an hour ago and it hasn't yet. As of right now, there is no sign whatsoever of any kind of agreement coming tonight. And we are looking at running into at least 24 hours, if not more, of overtime. Having now passed the official deadline for the end of the conference, there is a slight feeling of nobody quite knows what is going on. Everyone is waiting to see what will come out.
2: Later on, on Friday night though, Not everyone was as determined as Rachel to stick around.
3: China's economic position has changed dramatically. What you can hear there is uh, people rolling suitcases down the main street. Lots of people seem to be heading home for the night. Uh, Unclear how many of them will actually be here tomorrow. Negotiations going on for longer. Actually, sometimes means that some parties end up being excluded because it costs a lot of money to rebook your flight at the last minute when 33,000 people are simultaneously trying to do the same thing. So there is a kind of equity issue there.
2: By Saturday afternoon, we were all under the impression that an agreement had been reached on funding for loss and damage. But some rich countries decided that there was a problem with the proposal as it stood then. The delegates Headed back to the negotiating rooms. The background
3: voices that you can hear here are people milling around outside of meeting room three, where the heads of delegation are about to have a consultation with the presidency. The point of that is to try and kind of ungum the negotiations, which at this stage are very, very stuck.
2: While the negotiations carried on, the exodus of everyone else continued from the venue.
3: Now walking across the main courtyard, there's really nobody here. Um, Almost all of the food stands, including these somewhat incongruous pop-up Hard Rock cafe, have been dismantled and taken away. Earlier today, uh, all of the vegetarian food seemed to run out. The only thing left was turkey sandwiches, which some people were not delighted by. But yes, there's a very strong sense of talks dragging on longer than anyone expected or hoped. One of the things that you hear people say a lot is that it's a 3D game of chess being played by increasingly tired people. Um, which I don't really understand because I think chess is 3D. But anyway, this is not a useful thought. It is now nearly 3am on Sunday morning. Um, so we're now going into the second day of... Over time, we have been waiting for the final plenary when countries will discuss the deal that has been reached in the text. Uh, We're in this kind of big space outside the plenary room, which looks like a sort of quite fancy airport lounge. Um, And there are just huge amounts of people
2: asleep. But just a few hours later, the journalists that were still awake were shepherded into the plenary hall to hear the final agreement led by COP President Sameh Shukri.
1: Any missteps that might have occurred were certainly not intentional and were done with the best interest of the process in mind. I'm deeply appreciative to all parties and groups who have steadfastly engaged with my team and I and with each to allow us to reach the final outcome before us.
2: To analyse what came out of that final plenary session, Vijay and Katrina here. Thanks for joining me, both of you. Have you made it back safely and happily?
4: Uh, Thanks, Alok. Safely, yes. Uh, Let's say tiredly, with tiredness.
2: (laughs) Vijay, is it distant memory for you now?
0: That's right. Um, I was never happy, so at least I made it home
2: safe. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Katrine, look, we've just heard Rachel take us on a behind the scenes tour of those last 36 hours of the conference, the exciting bit, the weekend. You know, I'm just wondering what the mood was like over those last few days.
4: Yeah, the last few days were a real contrast, actually. Probably one of the strangest conclusions to a COP that I've seen. So the final 24, 48 hours were really acrimonious in terms of debates and agreements. They really hadn't come to an agreement on much right up until the final plenary at at 4am on Sunday morning. And then suddenly we were all ushered into this plenary, hadn't expected it. And the entire thing was just gaveled through in near silence. I've never seen anything like it.
2: Uh, Vijay, the headline achievement of the summit, we're led to believe, was this agreement on the issue of loss and damage. Now, we spoke at length about this in the very first episode of this series. And uh, I believe there's some audio of Katrine when that motion was passed. So So that means that this must have been historic. But Vijay, tell me, in your sober analysis, how much of a big deal is this? Loss and damage was something that was always a bit difficult to pass. I remember you saying this. Will it really make a big difference?
0: I was... Skeptical that a deal could be reached just because it's so difficult on this issue, especially with the big rich countries historically having been opposed. So it is a big deal, actually. It's an accomplishment, an accomplishment on the diplomatic front, and it puts down a marker on the moral front as well. However, you have to look a little closer at the details. And I suspect it may prove a damp squib on the financial front for three reasons. First is it's not clear who will actually pay. Will China pay? Well, India, as some of the island states indicated that they wanted to be included amongst those who are culpable. Uh, What about middle income countries like the Asian Tigers, Singapore and so on? And if not, why not? They got rich by polluting as well. A uh, second question is, you know, how much money is going to be in the kitty, or maybe I should say how little will be in the kitty. And third, the money that comes in eventually, is it going to be redirected from other funds? That is, is money that might have been going to adaptation or resilience or just old-fashioned donor aid somehow is going to get repurposed, uh, that the left pocket ends up in the right pocket? Or is this additional to monies that should rightly be going to those other things those buckets need to increase dramatically as well, as we've said before. So those are the kinds of questions that I have and I'd want to look carefully at going forward.
4: A lot of people have those questions, to be honest. And like Vijay, I agree, I don't think this is ever going to generate real amounts of money. It's more about the signal that it sends.
2: Well, I expect that cops from here on in will be discussing this every single time and let's see where it goes. But I guess on the other hand, one of the more controversial things was that the text didn't really go anywhere on the energy front. So the final agreement didn't advance anything on the phasing down of coal that was mentioned at the COP26. I just wonder if the fossil fuel interests sort of hijacked this meeting and didn't let that go any further.
4: Yeah, well, there was a really strong sense that actually delegates who'd come to COP hoping to advance on the Glasgow Climate Pact last year just basically had to do a whole lot of peddling just to not backslide. So that was definitely a strong feeling there. There was also this addition at the last moment into the final text of a mention of low emissions energy, which took everybody by surprise. I was running around at 4 a.m. trying to get people to tell me what it even meant, and a lot of people weren't sure where it had come from. The assumption is that it's a reference, a veiled reference to the use of gas, and in fact a veiled reference to the need for gas going forward. The thing to remember, though, is that this is COP, right? It's not the be-all and end-all. And a lot of action is actually happening, well, in fact, the majority of the action is happening outside COP, on the ground, in countries. And so, yes, this needs to send a strong signal and it needs to not take the momentum away. But it's not, this text doesn't have the ultimate say on what happens outside.
2: Uh, Vijay, when we spoke last time, you mentioned that having fossil fuel representatives at this meeting was important because we needed to bring them into the fold when having discussions, or at least the world does. I just wonder what your thoughts are on the final text and the fact that perhaps there wasn't so much of a reduction in in the idea of fossil fuel use as perhaps people might have wanted or expected.
0: Look, fossil fuels are going to be with us for a long time on every official forecast, especially in the developing world, where the needs of dealing with energy poverty, of development are, are the greatest. And let's be realistic about this, Uh, have the fossil fuel interests involved, but make sure that the usage of things like coal in particular, uh, which is environmental enemy number one, both for local pollution as well as for climate, be tackled quite aggressively. And natural gas, if we do use it in the right way, that is controlling the methane emissions upstream making sure you don't get fossil fuel lock-in downstream, and we've written extensively about this on our pages on how to do that, then I think it should be part of the transition. It's unrealistic and even a bit naive to think that you can continue the trajectory of global development without it. And on the flip side, if you really want to phase out fossil fuels, Stop using them. Right? It's really about demand. <laughs> the reason these uh, oil countries and oil companies and fossil fuel suppliers are able to sell is because we, each one of us, continues to guzzle fossil fuels at unprecedented rates, broadly speaking. And so, if we really are serious at the level of national governments, at the level of our towns and communities, even at the level of individuals, we need to use less fossil fuels. And when demand falls, which nothing in the COP agreement stops us from doing, that I think you'll see the kind of results that people desire. But sort of nostrums from the UN stage declaring that somehow the supply of fossil fuel must fall, they're going to run into the reality of us continuing to use fossil fuels, that is demand, and we're going to get crunches like we did in Europe two years ago in winter, like we've seen recently with premature underinvestment in fossil that leads to backlashes and shortages and blackouts. That doesn't help the energy transition.
2: Katrine, just to wrap this section up, um, in the first episode of the series, I asked you what a successful COP would look like. And you said it would be successful if momentum on climate action was maintained and talks didn't break down. Now, they didn't break down, but do you think momentum was maintained?
4: Um, Yeah, there were a lot of mixed reactions on that. So my take post-COP at the minute is that there was a real risk that tensions bubbling up outside the COP process were going to infiltrate their way into this COP and and create a sort of a logjam. And I think we saw that being released in a number of ways. We saw China and the US, importantly, resuming climate bilaterals. And that is a really important signal from the world's two largest emitters to the rest of the world that momentum is being maintained. We didn't backslide on Glasgow. We didn't necessarily make any progress, you know, from where we stood on mitigation in Glasgow. But on the other hand, as I said, I think a lot of that is also being done outside the COP process. And the important thing is that the COP process and the tensions between rich and poor don't take away from what's happening outside. And then there was a real achievement in terms of loss and damage, which again, I don't think is going to generate lots of money, but does go some ways towards sort of repairing these tensions and these frustrations that the poor countries have towards the rich. So I'd say it's sort of maintaining face at this point and maintaining good relations, which hopefully will help everything that's happening outside.
2: And Vijay, was there anything from the text that you or people you've spoken to think was missing? Was there anything that was a glaring omission?
0: I always feel, especially at these little cops, as we've discussed, what happens on stage is only half the story or even less than half. What we saw on the sidelines and from the bottom up and even outside of the cop venue were numerous, I think, encouraging things. Central banks, for example, organized themselves and proposed ways to scale up blended finance. Financial institutions with $66 trillion in assets committed to net zero targets. A group of big multinationals, known as the First Movers Coalition, committed $12 billion to early and expensive buy-down of things like green cement and green steel. Dozens of countries signed up to the Global Methane Pledge to slash emissions of that greenhouse gas by 30% by 2030. And over at the G20 summit, which was concurrent, we saw Indonesia receive a $20 billion deal for early retirement of coal and a rapid scale up of renewables. I mean, these are all really interesting and important and potentially catalytic kinds of developments. Some of them will fail, but some of them will work. And I think that's the kind of thing to watch for that gives me a, a bit of hope.
2: Well, VJ, I'm glad that you're still an optimist, at least. Thank you very much for all of that. Next, we'll focus on another one of those projects on the sidelines at COP27, something that blends together all of the clever financing and technology that we've discussed in this series. Can people in Africa be paid to restore ecosystems? That's coming up. COP27 has been nicknamed by a lot of people as Africa's COP. Many of the issues discussed over the past two weeks haven't been given a lot of time in past meetings. Things like how to address water scarcity while rivers like the Nile are drying up, and also the push for loss and damage to feature on the agenda. But what about practical solutions? How can ecosystems be adapted so that they take more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. One region that plays an outsized role in the task of carbon sequestration is Latin America. The Amazon contains half of the world's undisturbed tropical forests. And its flora absorb 1.5 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every year. That's equivalent to 4% of global emissions that come from burning fossil fuels. In the last century, however, deforestation has been absolutely fundamental to the world's development. As the global economy has grown, forests have been cleared at an increasing rate to make way for soybeans, rubber, cattle and palm oil.
5: It's become the most widely consumed vegetable oil on the planet. But for years a large amount of palm oil production has been linked to deforestation and destruction of habitat for orangutan tigers and elephants
2: the united nations estimates that around 27 football fields worth of forest are being lost every minute some governments are therefore looking for ways to incentivize the restoration of their forests while also promoting economic growth And of course it's not just Latin America that faces this problem. The continent of Africa suffers the highest rates of land degradation on the planet. Much of its land can no longer be used for agriculture, which worsens food insecurity and economic opportunities. And with less carbon dioxide being captured by the plants, greenhouse gas emissions stay in the atmosphere. A project that's trying to address this is the African Forest Landscape Restoration Initiative, or AFR100. The initiative is operating across 33 African countries, and it aims to restore 100 million hectares of land and forest by 2030.
5: The reason it's called AFR100, it was supposed to be 100 million hectares, but it ended up 130 plus million hectares. And what the goal here is, is to work in these countries, develop programs, to work with community-level organizations, to provide them support, financial and technical, so that they can actually restore their land around them or their land in a way that is sustainable, monitorable and economically profitable.
2: Ani Dasgupta is the president of the World Resources Institute, one of the supporters of the AFR100 project. 60%
5: 60% of Africa's land today is degraded. So think about that. It's a place where majority of people are dependent on land for the livelihood and that same land is getting degraded, not protected, and producing less and less. So the primary driver is actually making lives better. The wonderful byproduct is it's also good for carbon, good for nature, good for climate. So if we did this right we think 240 million people's lives will be different.
2: One of the aims of the scheme is to educate smallholder farmers on how to grow trees as well as use land for agriculture.
5: There are ways to do agroforestry that allows you to grow trees that not only particularly create shades and protection for your crop, but actually provides additional economic value from the same land. And as you can imagine, the carbon sequestration part that happens automatically. So we did the advertisement. To say, you know, who wants to participate in uh, working towards restoring land and what capacity you have? In two weeks, 3,200 organisations, individuals, applied. In two weeks, we had to shut it out after that.
2: At COP27, it was announced that AFR 100 would receive unprecedented levels of financial support. Three things are amazing
5: here. Scale of finance, the fact that... Restoration, which is Mm -hmm. one of the hardest thing to finance anyway, might actually get private capital. And the third, we are trying to figure out how to get massive amount of funds that is absolutely needed to local actors and figure out how to make them accountable for it.
6: We have many, many projects, and the interesting uh, thing with AFR100 is that we have a good mix of, let's say, country uh, funding, the governments of Africa, but also uh, private investment and international um, investment.
2: Mamadou Jakite is the manager of the AFR100 Secretariat.
6: One uh, big programme that we have in four countries currently, and that is funded by the German government, uh, 20 million euros to. To restore 100,000 hectares of degraded land to bring them back to agriculture in Malawi, in Rwanda, in Cameroon and in Kenya.
2: Mamadou works with the local populations of these countries to ensure that the restoration funding goes to the right places.
6: We went to work with uh, countries, governments, to get their buy-in, but also go to the local level to really identify together in a very participatory manner the areas to be restored that was selected by the local uh, people. We also work on the species that are really from that area in, uh, in, in priority. It has started since 2019 and uh, when you see the time series of those uh, areas, you see the, that uh, it is being regrained in a very,
2: very effective manner. There are many ways that the projects can encourage land to be restored rather than destroyed for agriculture
6: incentives can be job creation uh, because there are a lot of low hanging fruits in the restoration for instance we have a program called the land accelerator where we we select through um, a true, uh, rigorous process of uh, call for proposals to young african farmers men and women to, for instance, encourage the creation, setting up of nurseries. They create startups to do seedlings, to do nurseries, because we know that if we want to restore at that big scale, we need seedlings and nurseries in almost every corner in the continent. So a lot of incentives in terms of job creation, in terms of empowering women, in terms of also fixing young population in Africa, in the rural areas also.
2: A big piece of the AFR-100 plan is to use artificial intelligence and satellite imagery to observe how much land is being restored and therefore how much more carbon can be captured.
5: So the coolest thing here is to able to take a piece of land and do the tree counts and the tree measurements, then taking that data to a geospatial map of that area
2: the first step to make this technology work is to measure the amount of vegetation on the ground at any given point and work out how much carbon it can store.
5: Then we compare that with the geospatial data that we have. They're using drones, drone footage to get their own aerial picture. They're submitting these things, we're uploading the shape files.
2: Once they have the baseline data on carbon content, which involves counting plants on the ground, and from images taken by drones, it can be calibrated with the amount of greenery seen on satellite images. All of that data helps to train a computer model so that in future, they can calculate the carbon content of restored land just from a satellite image.
5: We will figure out how to measure a particular tree, what does it look like, how much carbon it has, and then we can monitor, because the biggest part of restoration is it's a long term contract, right? So you put money in restoring a thousand hectare, you want to know what's happening and you're sitting in Seattle or wherever you're sitting. Because then we can actually tell people who give money that their tree is actually growing.
2: That makes it a useful tool for accountability.
5: Satellite imagery is actually exponentially becoming better. But then using the data itself is not enough. You have to help people make better decisions with the data.
2: When the artificial intelligence system is fully functioning, it'll also help with the decision-making for future projects, for the farmers on the ground, but also for investors and governments. Eventually, it could help to verify schemes to set up carbon markets, for example, by proving that a promise to plant trees means that those trees actually get planted.
5: Carbon market is a transaction which is a long-term investment of a tree or a forest to remain there. I could see a future where carbon track transactions were based on actual data. Right now it's not.
2: Mamadou explained how the benefits will filter into local communities.
6: We are very uh, strong in our agreements with investors that even the carbon credits, carbon money, part of it should go to the community, even in terms of in-kind support to, to agree to build a hospital, a school, a clinic for the community. We put all those elements in our agreement, so to get really a strong buy-in from the communities.
2: While the technology will no doubt have a big impact in the future, Mamadou pointed out that the benefits are already being felt on the ground today. AFR 100 offers a young entrepreneurship scheme for how to build and develop businesses using the restored land.
6: In Ghana, we have one young uh, guy who just heard the expression post-harvest loss on the radio, wanted to find out, and went to his area where they are a tomato producer, and he noticed that after the rainy season, one month after they lose half of their harvest, what they could not uh, sell on the spot at that time, and then he created um, a small factory. Now he's uh, with $5,000 support. Now he's employing more than 50 other young people in the area and uh, generating revenue also for the farmers around.
2: I'm now back with Vijay Vethiswaran and Katrine Braik. Now, Katrine, you reported on AFR 100 from COP27. Why did it strike you as such an important project?
4: I mean, I think what it does is illustrate really nicely the kind of positive movement that Vijay was referring to earlier, and in particular in this case, positive movement in an area that we haven't spoken about much on this podcast yet, in terms of ecosystem restoration and using basically nature-based solutions. So in this case, it's sort of restoring ecosystems for the benefit of the people who use them, but also in such a way that you can enhance the amount of carbon storage in those ecosystems. So this is sort of sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere in order to help stabilize the climate. And what's particularly nice about AFR 100 is that it addresses many of the different complexities and levels of doing that. So going from trying to raise large amounts of money, a big pot that then gets distributed to a hundred or thousands of different actors on the ground in a very distributed way and in a very locally and regionally relevant way. And then the bit that I really like as well is that it also tackles the tech question. How do you know that the projects that you're financing are actually delivering what you need them to be delivering in terms of carbon storage? It uses some really nice tech wizardry to do that, and also potentially then feeds into other projects and other really important things like the voluntary carbon market. We know that there's an issue with the fact that when you buy offsets, I mean, if you're buying an offset to offset your flight, for instance, a lot of that stuff goes into ecosystem restoration. It's really hard to know if that ultimately leads to less CO2 in the atmosphere. And if this tech is developed in the way that they promise it will be developed, then it could actually feed into that as well. So it's sort of really nice on the regional level, and then it feeds into the finance, and it feeds into a global purpose as well.
2: And Vijay, let's talk briefly about the technology and innovation that we just heard about in the AFR100 initiative. Thinking about all of this through the lens of climate realism, is this the type of innovation that you think we should be seeing more of?
0: Absolutely. I am very supportive of attempts to bring in clever technology, monitoring, oversight, analytics, transparency into a lot of these things that are happening around the world, in part because there is so much greenwashing and dubious generation of credits. At COP, I met a guy who introduced himself, knowing that I'm a journalist, openly explained his business model was in India to go to company secretaries at corporates and get them basically to fiddle their books so that he could generate credits to sell to his customers for bogus carbon offsets. And so, you know, there's a cottage industry in this area. So I'm delighted whenever anything can monitor, verify, and keep things a little more credible. And preservation, renovation of forests, building resilience, local capacity are good things to do in their own right. I do remain a little bit skeptical about forests as a source of carbon sequestration in the long term, uh, just because even the best artificial intelligence can't guarantee a forest won't be burnt down sometime in the next hundred years. And so I think we need to be cautious in how much of our carbon budget is devoted to this form of carbon capture. Let's be pragmatic. Let's do these things to analyze and monitor, but let's not be a bit blinded by the technology. We have to remember that there's a broader system here and there are limits to this approach.
4: So just one important thing there, I agree with Vijay that obviously there's a risk that as temperatures warm, you get more forest fires, and so you end up in this negative feedback loop. But I think you have to have ecosystems to have a stable climate. We know that. You can't just assume that they're all going to disappear. And the other thing that's nice about this project is that it's not just about the climate. It's also about local, regional benefit to people who are actually relying on those ecosystems for their livelihood. So it's sort of like the climate and local livelihoods acting as co-benefits to each other.
2: Okay, well, let's conclude this series with a couple of predictions from you both about COP28. Can you believe it? We're already thinking about it and not giving you any time to rest in between. Um, Vijay, between now and next year, how can governments and scientists ensure that um, the things that have been talked about at COP27 move forward, but also we start to think about the things that will make a much more longer term difference?
0: So there's some specific things to watch for in the next 12 months. I'm going to be watching for progress on tackling emissions of methane. Now, we all know methane is a principal component of natural gas. It's a more potent greenhouse gas, much more so in the short term than carbon dioxide. And there has been real progress in, first of all, identifying the culprit and in getting coalitions together for monitoring, measuring, managing this through both the UN as well as industry bodies. And I think this is something that we're going to see progress on. I'll be watching for that. We saw green hydrogen, which is a potential fuel of the future, actually make its appearance on the official stage for the first time at this COP. I argue in a a new piece in our World Ahead publication that this is going to be a make or break year, the coming 12 months for this interesting technology. And I'll be watching that closely. We've seen blended finance, which is something that people sort of hold up as a unicorn of development. The idea that some public money can take the first risk so that lots more private money can come and help finance things like clean energy. Well, the rules of the road on how actually donors, institutions should do this is going to be published by a relevant official body before COP28. So those are worth watching. We know the missing details on the loss and damage fund. Let's see if there's any progress on that. And finally, we're going to see reform of the World Bank, IMF, and other international financial institutions. Now, every country in the world has now officially said, as per this COP, that this is something that should happen. That has never happened before. And maybe at the spring meetings of the World Bank and IMF, we might actually see some action to get them to take more risk in order to encourage climate-friendly investments and not be so risk-averse as they have been in the past, as per their charters.
2: Katrine, um, COP28 is going to be in Dubai, one of the centres of the oil production world. That's some progress, I guess, or maybe it isn't. What will you be watching for between now and then to make sure that that COP does some of the things that are promised now and actually builds on, on the action so far?
4: I mean, yes, COP28 will be held in Dubai and there's split opinions. You can look at this as finally the COP where the fossil fuel industry ends up becoming part of the conversation in a very productive way. And of course, as you can very well imagine, there's a lot of resistance and worry about, in fact, whether some of this is going to be greenwashing or backsliding. But I think that actually, in a sense, we need to start taking the focus away from the COPs. The COPs, I think they're very, very useful, but they're not... Everything. I think there is a lot that's happening on the front lines of actually climate action outside the COP's. I'm very interested in how the climate finance story progresses. Vijay mentioned these spring meetings next year. Macron is calling for a sort of examination of the Mia Motley initiative called the Bridgetown Initiative to have another look at how or restructure the global financial system. I think that story is going to be really, really interesting. And then what is happening in the background of all of this is what's known as the global stock take. And that is finally the first reckoning of how. Governments are delivering on the promises that they have made under the Paris Agreement.
2: Katrine Brahek, Vijay Vethiswaran, let's leave our COP coverage there. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you both back on the show to discuss more climate change, more innovation, more technology soon. And this is not an issue that's going away anytime. Thank you very much for joining me and for guiding me through all four episodes in this series. And uh, go and get some rest.
4: Thank you, Alok. Thanks, Alok.
2: Thanks also to Annie Dasgupta, Mamadou Jakite, and The Economist's Rachel Dobbs. And of course, thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can listen to our full series on COP27 at economist.com slash COP27 pod. I recommend going back to listen to our first episode called The New Climate Realism, where you'll learn about the funding options and science behind loss and damage in much more detail. On that page, you'll also find a selection of other climate podcasts we've made this year. There's a link in the show notes. And for more of our climate coverage as we enter the next chapter of Climate Action, become a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a special introductory rate by heading to economist.com slash podcast offer. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with additional help this week from Sarah lan Yuke. Mixing and sound design is by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Char, and in London, this is The Economist.
4: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business
3: to a global corporation,
4: partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do?
2: Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.